Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and welcome to an additional SITREP podcast. The head of the British Army says by the end of the decade, the army will be the most modern and the most lethal in Europe. In a wide-ranging interview, General Sir Patrick Sanders, who is set to step down from the role next year, also tells Forces News he felt an emotional tug seeing footage of a UK Challenger 2 burning in Ukraine, the first of this type to be lost to enemy action. In this special SITRED podcast, the Chief of the General Staff spoke to Forces News' Jean Grezchak, who asked him first about the Future Soldier Programme, which he describes as the most radical transformation of the British Army he's experienced in his 40 years of service. Well, Future Soldier is a response to um, the strategic context we're in, and that was captured, I think, pretty well in the integrated review in 2021. But of course, what we've had since then is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so, although we characterize Russia as a threat, I think the threat, the the speed at which that's accelerated towards us um, has taken everyone by surprise. And so, what we've done is to adapt at real pace um, what Future Soldier set out because we know that we could be required to fight, um, and certainly we need to be able to deter the threats in Europe um, this decade. Future Soldier is incredibly exciting. So um, at its heart, it's the most radical transformation of the British Army that I've experienced in the 40 years that I've been in uniform. This is an incredibly exciting time to be joining the Army, and if you're in the Army now, you join now, the Army you join will look radically different in the course of the next six or seven years. And just to give you a sense of of the pace of that, we've now got um, a really clear sense of our purpose. So the Army's purpose is to fight and win wars on land. That's an important point of clarity for everybody. Secondly, we have thought through and tested to destruction how we're going to fight. So the doctrine about how we fight, both in the near term, so in the sort of 2026 timeframe, and then um, beyond that into the 2030s um, is now set out and it's set out in the land operating concept. So we know how we're going to fight and then that drives the capabilities that we need. And the pace of that is extraordinary. So to give you an idea, we've got, we will be fielding over 200 armoured fighting vehicles every year for the next five years. And that's Challenger 3, that's Ajax, that's Boxer, It'll be a new mobile fires platform, so a replacement for the AS-90. We've got 50 AH-64 Echoes, the attack helicopters being filled. As that's two regiments of attack helicopters. This is, by a country mile, the most advanced fighting helicopter, attack helicopter in the world. And then there is a full program of digitization. So we're reducing from a, you know, a, a very wide fleet of legacy platforms into a much smaller fleet of incredibly cutting-edged advanced uh, platforms and then that will be drawn into structures that are directly relevant first and foremost to the role that we have in the Euro-Atlantic area so it's a core part of NATO so our offer to NATO will be forward land forces so up to a brigade ready to defend and fight alongside our Estonians our Estonian partners It'll have a core headquarters with a warfighting division and core enablers under that as NATO's strategic response force. And then this year or next year, we will provide NATO's 
Allied Response Force, so the most high readiness part of NATO, um, and that when it's not doing that, the first division were part of a global response force. So it's a it's a massive program of change, um, and uh, I think this is an incredibly exciting time to be part of the army. It's interesting that you use the word exciting because I would like to talk to you about the life of today's soldier and getting them to stay in. General James Swift, who is the last chief of defence people, told us on the SITREP podcast that people should be allowed to join and not start at the bottom. Given the issues that you've got with recruitment and retention, is it time for a radical approach to, to retention? And, and what would you see that being? I mean, I think it's, I wouldn't want to overplay the retention challenge. Our retention figures are well within historical norms. So we're not losing people at an unusual rate. We're just refreshing the army at the natural rate that occurs, where people choose to serve for four or five years and then go back into society. And of course, they contribute to society doing so. Recruiting is a challenge, but we're not alone in, doing, in, in, in facing that. The other services face the same thing, and many of our Western partners do as well. But that's why I, you know, that's why I point to the Army's relevance. I mean, you've only got to look at what's going on in, in Ukraine at the moment to see that land forces have never been more relevant or more important. Um, why I point to, you know, this is an exciting time to join and you will be working with the very best, some of the best equipment in the world. So the British Army will be the most modern and most lethal army in Europe by the end of this decade. And the opportunities, the excitement that people often join the services for should be a real pull. I mean, we've got um, 10,000 soldiers deployed in 66 countries around the world. You know, we are really busy and we're busy doing very interesting stuff with partners, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Africa, Middle East, or the Asia Pacific. Um, now, the program of um, people transformation, if you like, um, does look at things like um, uh, a spectrum of service. So people being able to join and serve for some of their career as a regular, some of their career as a, as a reservist, and then go back out and come back in again. It should be easier to move from the reserves to the regulars than it is at the moment, and we're getting after that. And for some people, you know, direct entry at different levels might well be appropriate. You know, if you've got, for example, deep cyber skills, then you don't need to come in at the bottom. We might be able to use those skills that you have at a higher level. Um, and that, that program of, of transformation um, around people is, you know, is something that we're working through over the next two, three, four years. You don't do revolution when it comes to people. You've got to evolve, so it takes a bit of time. Um, but this is, uh, you know, this is an exciting time to be in the Army. What about suggestions of, of lifting the age cap in terms of when you can serve? Would you agree with that? Do you mean how long you can serve to or yes, how old you yeah. can be when you join? How old you can serve to because many people leave because they have to because and, and they feel as though they, they've got more years in them, don't they? Yeah, so th there's no absolute answer to this um, because, I mean, frankly, serving on operations and war fighting is, um, is a game for, for fit people. And uh, you want, you want a, you know, a large part of your army to be young. And what you don't want to find yourself into is, is where some armies are around, around the world where the average age is 45 or 50, because that, that's just not an effective army. So there is, a, there is inherent merit in a constant cycle of refreshment of fighting units on the front line. 
But I'm also conscious that for many, we throw away years and years of experience, you know, deep, deep expertise in their particular trade um, in, uh, in the army. And so it will also, it's also right that, that we take some of those people, and you think about senior NCOs and warrant officers, where if we can find roles for them um, that draws on that expertise, then I think that's exactly the right thing we should be doing. You say that it's an exciting time to be in the military, but when you see the results of the Continuous Attitude Survey, more people are wanting to leave, more people are not satisfied when it comes to life, pay, promotion prospects. What was your reaction when you read the results of that survey? I always take those surveys very, very seriously. Um, and they, f they, f they feed um, a lot of the decisions that we take in, in the Army headquarters and indeed at, at defence level. And there are many instances where you know, those have prompted us to get after things, whether it's around policy changes or whether it's around investments. I also know, because I've been reading them for 40 years, and of course I've been contributing to those surveys myself, that, um, that you're never going to be able to satisfy all of the people all of the time. doesn't mean you, you shouldn't try, but you just can't. So there's a lot of repeat material and, and messages that come from this. One of the most consistent themes is around infrastructure, and it's, and it's true that there are parts of our estate that are just not fit for purpose. But it's also true that there are parts of our state that are infinitely better than they were when I joined. Um, now, doesn't make it right, but when I joined, we were quite often in rooms with 20 people inside them, you know, and now you forget, people tend to get their own room, they often get an ensuite facility as well. So the overall trend over, um, over the last couple of decades has been for significant investment in infrastructure, and we're seeing more of that around the defence estate optimization programme, but it's not fast enough. Um, and so, you know, we constantly look to invest, look to maintain the estate. Um, on pay, um, you know, we've just had a really significant pay rise. Um, it's not, you know, it's not, the, the last decade or so uh, has been tough for everybody in the public sector, but the government recognised more than almost any other part of, uh, uh, of the public sector the contribution that the military makes and this unique unlimited liability contract that we have. And I also don't think that people tend to join for the money or indeed stay for money. It's, it's the lifestyle, it's the sense of purpose, it's, it's everything that goes with being uh, in the military. So pay is important but it's not, it's not absolutely vital. And it's more about having a sense of purpose and feeling, va being, and feeling valued. Um, so. Um, uh, all of these messages matter, they do inform what we do, and, and I've got to balance the investments we take between paying people, between making sure that they've got the equipment so that when we put them on operations, they can fight effectively, having the infrastructure, infrastructure and also making sure that we've got enough money to be able to train and operate. And that's just a constant juggling act. When it comes to service family accommodation though, um, how disappointed are you that there have been so many examples and still are of forces families living in mouldy houses in not being able to get things repaired and things dropping to bits and just being so incredibly frustrated um, that nothing is changing? Yeah, I mean I share the frustration as well and if I could pull a lever that would fix this overnight then I'd have pulled it by now. So um, I mean th the only thing I can reassure people is that the conversations that, that I and my fellow chiefs have 
with the Defence Infrastructure Organisation and also with the contractors um, that uh, they're responsible for this maintenance are pretty robust. In 2023, why don't all female soldiers have kit that fits properly? That's a great question. Um, and it's something that we um, identified as a, you know, a quick win measure uh, a couple of years ago. And so we are beginning to roll out the sort of uniforms that, you know, that fit the female form better than, you know, it's sort of standard shapeless thing that, that men wear, body armour, helmets, weight. So that, that is all in train. Um, but no, I think it's a great challenge and we can't move fast enough on it. When will it be universal? Um, so I don't want to mislead by giving you a specific date, but I would expect in the next couple of years for that to, to be rolled out. How do you think that makes personnel feel? You know, it's 2023. Do you think in general, you know, this is a really bad state of affairs and it should have been sorted much sooner. I think, I mean, and I think we recognised that a couple of years ago, um, that, that um, finding equipment for, that, that fits all shapes and sizes for the military um, has got to be the right thing to do. Um, uh, but as I tell you, you know, we're, we, we're now moving out on it. Let's talk about um, recruitment, but also culture in the military. What do you say to parents whose children would like to join, but then they see very distressing stories in the media about what some women have been through, um, just very negative stories, and they think, I don't want my child anywhere near that. So what, what you describe there is, is unacceptable, and I think we've been clear at every level that, that those sort of behaviours have no place in the British Army or any of the regiments or corps that are part of it. My predecessor, after we had the Sarah Atherton report, which was a, you know, a really helpful illumination of some of the cultural issues and the, and the behaviours that we've seen, launched a programme called Operation Teamwork, which I think is proving to be one of the most effective cultural change programmes that I've seen, and I visit a lot of armies and they look to ours as best practice. And the reason it's so effective is because rather than focusing on some of the, the ways of, of checking diversity and inclusion and behaviours, some people describe that pejoratively as box ticking, it focuses on what you need to be effective teams. And of course we all know that when we find ourselves deployed on operations or in training, the, the environment in a team is often closer than you will experience anywhere and the dependence that people have on each other as team members is incredibly close. And in those conditions, people recognise that they have to be able to trust each other, that they have to be able to speak up, that they have to be themselves. So by linking the sort of cultures and behaviour that you would expect to uh, operational outputs and to what our core purpose is, is a very good way of making people focus on how they behave when they're not on operations. It, you know, we haven't got it universally right. There are still bad behaviours, um, and every time there are, we get after them. We're seeing, I think, much more openness in reporting those, which I'm encouraged by. But it's the, it's the, it, it, these, what you don't see is the extraordinary positive experience that most people have serving in the armed forces, the pride of, that men, women, people from all parts of society take 
feel in, in wearing this uniform and making a contribution. Um, and the extraordinary professionalism and commitment of some of the women that I serve with and have seen on operations around the world. But you mentioned Sarah Atherton's report. She sent a letter within the last couple of months um, concerned and worried about whistleblowers that had come forward and still talking about women going through horrendous things. But Sarah Atherton also has, you know, and she was Minister for Defence uh, Personnel and Veterans, um, also thinks that the, what the Army has done, whether it's at Sandhurst or this whole programme, and getting after the recommendations in her report has been exemplary. How would you measure um, how the culture is in 2023 compared to 10 years ago then? A, uh, I mean, almost unrecognisably different. So as I say, there are plenty of, you know, there are too, still too many examples of people not behaving as you would want. And, and that's because we draw from society. You know, these, these, are, these are not behaviours that are learned inside the army, quite the opposite. From the very first day that people join training, whether it's at Harrogate or Catrick or anywhere else, they're given a really, really clear set of, uh, of instructions around how they're expected to behave towards each other. So these are behaviours and values that we're importing from the rest of society, and it's how we then try to flush those out so that you build teams that we're getting after. And in terms of diversity and representation, how would you, where, where are you at at the moment, in your opinion, in the Army? Not where we should be. Um, uh, so female representation in the regular army is is about 10-12%. Uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic representation is around 15%. And I'm not interested in you know, having more women or more ethnic groups in the army for its own sake. I'm interested because there are parts of society where we're not tapping into the talent that we need. And also because in my experience, um, teams that are more diverse tend to be better teams and they come to they make better decisions so we've set ourselves some quite ambitious targets about growing female representation about ethnic minority representation um, we're seeing some progress against those but are we where we want to be no of course not what's the silver bullet there's no there's never a silver bullet you know it's a fallacy to think that you there's one thing that you can fix but the pride that people take in being part of um, what is unquestionably one of the most professional armies in the world with that extraordinary history of success behind it, the positive experience that people feel when they're on operations, as being as part of teams, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the difference we make to people's lives and prospects, those are all good reasons to join the army. You, know, you look at people who come to join us at, at Harrogate, 30% you know, of them have been excluded from school. When they leave Harrogate, all of them will have a GCSE in English and almost all of them will have a GCSE in maths. And you look at the faces of the parents and the families at those pass-out parades, the pride they take, the difference that we have made to their sons and daughters um, is extraordinary. So we change people's lives. We're an incredibly powerful tool of social mobility. You know, we're the leading apprentice employer for the third year running in the UK. There's a lot to celebrate as well. Let's talk about Ukraine. Soldiers are, soldiers are telling us how interested they are to actually see the kit they use um, being used uh, in Ukraine. What's your assessment of seeing our kit on the battlefield? So having advanced kit is, in, is important. I mean, if it wasn't, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't seek it. Um, but the, the, I think the, the key thing to remember, and this is a constant, is it's how you employ that kit. 
that's the most important. So I think we can take a lot of pride in the equipment that we've been given to the Ukrainians. So for example, um, they can't get enough of the AS-90s, um, the artillery pieces that we've been providing them. The Javelin missiles that we provided in the early stages of the war were absolutely critical in holding back and stopping the Russian advances. And of course, you know, we've now seen the first challengers in action. And the Challenger is, um, in many respects, one of the most advanced tanks in the world. And it's certainly the best protected. And you saw that, you know, when one of the, the you know, the first Challenger was lost in action, the crew all gone out. They did. But what went through your mind when you did see it destroyed? Well, I mean, an emotional tug, because I've probably been on that tank. You know, I mean, we have a deep affection with the vehicles and the equipment that we've been fighting with over the last years. But I also recognise that that's what happens in war. You've done an incredible amount in terms of training the Ukrainians. How have you adapted that over, you know, since the beginning of the war? And, and what are you learning um, real time from how they're fighting it? So we've, we've I mean, we've, as you say, we, our, our training contribution has been um, uh, the largest that there is. So we train about 30 to 40 percent of all of the Ukrainian soldiers who are, who are uh, conscripts, if you like, who are the volunteers who are joining. Uh, the rest are trained in Ukraine, and we do that with international partners. We've adapted the program, so we've extended the training period that they go through. We've changed and improved and invested in a lot of the facilities that they use in that training. We've changed the equipment that they train with to make it closer to what they're actually going to use on the battlefield. We obviously couldn't do that in the early stages. And we've listened to the Ukrainians themselves. So there's a constant dialogue between you know, the commanders forward and what they want to see in the training. We know that it's incredibly effective because the Ukrainians tell us that their best trained troops are the ones that we train. And we know from intelligence intercepts of the Russians that they can tell when they're up against troops that have been trained in the UK. So it's been a really successful program. I think we need to begin to pivot our training now from sort of quantitative, so generating mass, to qualitative and bringing it up a level so that we can begin to focus on training leaders, we can begin to develop or, or share our expertise in how you combine arms, you know, the way you fight to, to get against uh, enemy threats. And then, of course, the, you know, the war has been a crucible for, um, for, 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 for learning and adaptation. Um, and perhaps the biggest lesson, I mean, there are, you know, I could talk all day about the lessons that we draw from Ukraine and how we're building that into our own force design, you know, how it's affected future soldier. But perhaps the single, I say the two most important things are, first of all, the importance of, of morale and of will. You know, there, it's very clear the two armies that are fighting on that battlefield, which one has the most powerful sense of will and cohesion. And that in warfare will always see you through. And then the second is around adaptab adaptability. So, you know, it's Darwinian. You know, the, the species that adapts the fastest is the one that prevails and, and survives, not necessarily the strongest. And how significant within that discussion is, you know, the emergence truly of drone warfare and the amount of drones that are involved in this conflict? Hugely. Um, but you sh we shouldn't get ourselves drawn into sort of techno-fetishism or assuming that, that changes in technology 
will change the, the, the nature of war itself. You know, the, the, so the, 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 the battles with the drones um, are, are, are critically important and you know, we've invested 10.5 million just this year in making sure that when our troops train in places like Salisbury Plain, they've got swarms of drones over them so that they can adapt and also learn how to exploit them themselves. But equally, you know, the numbers of casualties, the rates of advance, the number of armoured vehicles and tanks that are lost to drones actually hasn't changed significantly in this conflict compared to previous conflicts as well. So you, you won't win if you don't constantly adapt and you don't exploit these new techniques and procedures. That's why the adaptation matters so much. But the advantage is always quite slight because the enemy then responds. So it's a constant process of adaptation. In, in terms of agility and speed as well, in your speech earlier this year, you famously said when talking about Warriors and Challenger 2s and how long they've been in service, you know, these are rotary dial telephones in a, an iPhone age. Um, can we reach the iPhone age and by that point, will it be another age? I mean, we are. Um, we are. So, so at the moment, you know, the army is, I mean, I described to you earlier on this extraordinary post-process of transformation that we're going through. Um, but we also need to be able to fight today, and that's why I launched Operation Mobilize you know, as soon as I took over uh, as the CGS, because we've got to make sure that we're able to deter threats from Russia to our NATO allies, and particularly in Eastern Europe, and that will mean we're fighting with the equipment that we have now. But as we're doing that, we're also bringing in new technologies um, and new capabilities. So if I point you just to one, you know, the Ajax will be and it is proving to be the most advanced armoured fighting vehicle in the world. You know, the capabilities that it has will make sure that we can be far more lethal and we can also operate in a much more networked way on the battlefield. So that will be genuinely transformational. If you want to think of it, then think of it as a, as a tracked version of the new model Apache. It is that advanced. But there have been, it's been fraught with, with issues and problems. Uh, so I'm very curious, what, what word would best describe Ajax, in your opinion, you know, given that it's been so associated with so many bad headlines? Well, the so the headlines you're talking about are the procurement process. You know, I, I, I'm not interested in the procurement process. I mean, I'd like to have had it in service faster and easier, but now that we're bringing it into service, the soldiers that are operating on it or trialling on it are completely blown away by the capabilities that it brings. What about Morpheus? Uh, huge delays there as well. How concerned are you that if it doesn't uh, get implemented, and we still don't have a date, um, that adversaries will be able to hack into the existing system and hear everything that commanders are saying on, on the radios? So you're, you're mixing a number of things there. I mean, first of all, I, I don't want to talk about Morpheus because we're in commercial negotiations with GD, uh, with General Dynamics, so I'm just not, I, I can't talk about it. Um, what I will say is that um, the existing system that we have at the moment, which of course constantly gets refreshed and upgraded, is sufficiently secure and allows us to fight um, integrating data and in a combined arms way. So the existing systems are fit for purpose. What they don't do is allow us to accelerate into a digital age at the pace that I would want to. And speaking of pace, the Defence Command paper talks about a five-year turnaround and three-year turnaround for digital projects. Um, how achievable is that, given what we've seen with the history of procurement in general? Well, you're, you're sending 
um, you're sort of selling a fairly tired narrative around uh, around procurement failures. I mean, let's point to the procurement successes. So when we gave Archer, when we gave um, the AS90s to the, the Ukrainians, um, uh, that left us with you know a gap in our in our inventory. Not having artillery is not a good thing. In the space of two months, we procured an artillery system from the Swedes, which is going to come into service this year. That is the fastest delivery of any procurement project that I can think of. So for every procurement failure, and you're right to point out that there have been some, there are also real procurement successes. 80 to 90% of the projects that Defence Equipment and Support run that are on contract come in either ahead of time or on time to, to specifications. So inevitably, there are always media focus on the procurement failures, but you need to balance it with some of the procurement successes that we've had as well. And Archer, the 6x6, would be one of those. Are you leaving happy with the size of the army? Um, well, I'm leaving. So first of all, uh, I'm not leaving. You know, I've still got uh, still almost half of my tenure to do is the CGS, and I've been lucky enough to be a chief for uh, almost five years now. I'll certainly, when I leave, I'll certainly leave happy because um, I've had an amazing career and mostly because, um, because I got to spend it with some of the most amazing people that I could hope to have met. Um, I mean, I just love being amongst soldiers um, and it's, you know, every day I spend in this office, in this building, is a day wasted because I'm not spending it in the company of soldiers. Um, but your question was, am I happy with the size of the army? So the discussion around numbers um, is, is not the right discussion to have. The discussion to have is around what capabilities and what, arm, what that army can do. And against the mission sets that we have been given, particularly as part of NATO and the new force model, then we've got the structure and we've got the size to deliver that. There's no point in simply adding numbers to the army if you haven't got the ability to make them more lethal, more connected and better protected. So I have to balance numbers with capability and I would rather make sure that the soldiers we have are able to operate and fight from advanced platforms than have under-equipped soldiers. Now, the army expands and contracts over time. It always has. And the British Army historically has never been a large army except in general wartime, but you've got to have the structure that allows you to expand as well. And, and that's what, as we, as we begin to restructure the army, that's what we're designing in. But you've been quoted as describing cuts to the army as perverse, so that sounds, that you are, sounds as though you're very unhappy with the size of the army. I don't think I need to repeat the answer I just gave you. You have a new defence secretary, fresh out of the box. What have you been telling him? So I started, I, I met him for the first time yesterday. He is an extremely um, experienced politician. And although he doesn't have a background in defence and security, he does have plenty of experience on the National Security Council. Many of his previous portfolios have given him an insight into security matters. But crucially, you know, what we most need from a Secretary of State for Defence is political skill, authority and weight around the cabinet table and the ability to have robust conversations with the Treasury. And Grant Chaps, Chaps brings all of those things. Um, yesterday, um, we had an introductory conversation. He's clearly very engaged and interested in what the Army is doing. He values what the Army does enormously. And we had a conversation from around 
what the purpose of an army is, what the army design needs to be, what the army should look like, and then the very exciting programme of modernisation and transformation that we've embarked on. What do you want from him and how long do you think it will be until he fully gets up to speed with the complexities of understanding the military and the differences between each of the services? So we've been very lucky over the last four years to have a Secretary of State who's got previous military experience and is deeply passionate about the military and, and we've benefited from all of Ben Wallace's experience and passion. But this is a department, this is a building full of experts. So what you need from a minister, a defence secretary, is, is political expertise. It's the ability to provide strategic and political direction. And in Grant Shapps, that's exactly what we've got. You said you've got plenty more months left in, in the job. Um, why are you leaving? Well, <laughs> um, because um, my time, because my watch is ended. To quote a bit of uh, Game of Thrones, you know, I have, I have, I'm in my late fifties. I've done forty years close to in uniform. This is my second job um, uh, as a as a uh, as a chief, as one of the chiefs, um, and uh, um, and I've been able. I think I hope I've been able in the in the time that I've been in this job to begin that process of transformation of the army. But you also have to make sure that you've got your successor queued up. You know, you're handing over something that is that is a going concern, and sometimes that's the right time. Was it your decision to leave, or would you have liked to have stayed in this post a little bit longer? Some of your predecessors have. I mean, I, so I'm the longest-serving chief. You know, I've done more time as a chief than almost any of my predecessors. But would you have liked to have extended it even further? So this is a this is a job that it's a privilege to be in, um, and I have loved every minute that I've been in this job. It's not always a picnic, but I've loved it mainly because it's an opportunity and I've tried to add back to the soldiers I've had. So whatever time I'm given in this job is a privilege. In terms of soldiers today, what would you tell them that you wish you could have told yourself at the beginning of your career? Oh no, I think, I think that's, not, um, that's not where I'd start. So the you know, I, I, was, I was talking earlier on about you know, why it is I stayed. One of the reasons I stayed is because I don't think in any other walk of life could I have spent 40 years rubbing soldiers with people from every single part of British society and every conceivable background and rubbing soldiers with people, most of whom are below the age of 24 or 25. And youth has a vitality, an optimism, a sense of a lack of limits and what I'd hate to do as an old fart is to begin to try to, to stifle some of that enthusiasm. So you're, you know, feel free to make mistakes. You know, the sort of boldness that, bring, that youth brings is one of our greatest strengths. What would you like to get done in your last few months? Um, so I'd like to make sure that the programme of modernisation and transformation that we've embarked on is completely locked in and built into you know, all of the parties' manifestos, because I think the vision that we've got for the British Army is incredibly exciting. Um, I think it's what the country needs, um, and, uh, uh, and, and making sure that that secures cross-party support will be critical for me, um, and critical for the Army. And then I want to continue to make sure that we're, um, that we're delivering success on the battlefield in Ukraine. And success 
um, in general across the military, you talked about the importance of people. Just briefly want to ask you about the interview that you gave, very candidly talking about mental health. Um, what sort of reception did you get when, when you were very open and honest uh, about what you've been through? Um, so, I mean, that was an interview that, that, that got far more publicity than, than I anticipated. I didn't think people would be very interested in what I had to say. Turns out that there was more interest than I was expecting. But all I was trying to do in that interview was, and it was done uh, at a period of time where it's called time, for, time to Talk, so it's a day each year where people do talk about their mental health. That's why I did it. And I wanted people to understand that, you know, mental ill health affects everybody. You know, it's no different to physical ill health. That there is absolutely you no know, stigma associated with being honest about how you're feeling. And if you come into work and you're on an off day, whether it's because you've had a bad night's sleep, because you're not feeling physically fit, or because things are getting on top of you, then you should talk about it. Because the best cure for people feeling um, under the weather or depressed or low is to unload that burden and to share it with someone. And, and you know, the thing about the army is that um, people, get, people are so close. You know, the, the, the bond that exists between soldiers who are under fire, who've gone through those deeply intense experiences together and have witnessed suffering as well, is close to love. I mean, often it is love. And so, you know, what you, what you think about yourself isn't necessarily what other people think of you. And so being able to, people want to help. And people always want to help. So you should feel free to talk about it. And I have, you know, I mean, I have good days and there are days where I feel, I feel really low as well. And the great thing is that I've got a team of people outside this office who, uh, who I can talk to. You know, I've got an army sergeant major who, uh, who's incredibly uh, receptive and you know, he'll either give me a kick and a bollocking or he'll give me some encouragement. Can you share anything with us about some of the toughest things that, that, that you've struggled with? It, it, it comes from, I mean, it's, it's never one thing. So it's always the compound effect of a variety of different things com coming together. Um, so, you know, at my lowest points, it was a combination of, um, you know, some, some dark memories from being on operations where... We'd, we'd lost a lot of friends, and then dealing with the grief, and then on top of that, um, sometimes feeling either that your work wasn't going so well, or inevitably you have ups and downs in personal relationship with family or friends, and those things come together. Um, so it's never the one thing, it's recognizing when you know, things are beginning to come together in a compound way, that's the point where sticking your hand up is important, because you tip over the edge, you go into a you know, into a dark pit where you're then unable to ask for help. What is your message to anyone who is still, despite you, you know, at, at your level giving an interview about it, who might still be a bit scared about, about being honest about how they're feeling? That, that I recognise that people um, feel scared about it. It's okay to feel scared about it. Um, there's no shame in not talking about it, but there's no shame in, in, in sharing either. And you'll be, take the risk, you know, put your hand up, ask someone for help. And just finally, it, you did talk about always having something on the horizon to look forward to. What are you looking forward to? And also, uh, what's your plan when you do finish as, as CGS? What's on the ridge line for you then? Um, so my, you know, my ridge lines are more, my horizons at the moment are more limited than that. You know, every 
waking moment for me is is about thinking about the army, you know, serving our soldiers and how we can make them better. What comes after that, I don't know, but it'll be uh, it'll be exciting because it's a change, and change is always exciting. All right, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really Thanks, appreciate Sean. it. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Sitrep.